It's good to be back with you again. I hope you've had a restful week and that you've learned a great deal through your study in God's Word. We've been learning about the God of the Bible, who He is, our relationship to Him, and how He feels about us. And now we're discovering that the Bible dedicates several chapters to the event of the great flood of Noah's day. In fact, more verses in Genesis tell of the flood than of creation or the fall. The flood marked the end of an era. Noah's generation was so terribly depraved that God rightly brought judgment on it. The flood immediately cleansed the earth, But according to the New Testament, the flood served an even greater purpose. It foreshadowed a future event, and it taught a spiritual truth, that God is the judge of the earth, and his just nature requires him to pass judgment. The flood also reveals God's power over creation his freedom to rule, his inability to tolerate sin, and the serious measures he'll take to ensure a holy remnant remains on the earth. Well, the further we delve into the Old Testament, the more we'll see that just as with the flood, God often used historical realities, you know, events that really occurred or objects that actually existed, to foreshadow future realities and convey spiritual truths. When he acts in human history, it always serves a greater purpose than what's immediately evident. You know the same is true with his present work in our lives. What he's doing is so much bigger than we can imagine. Ephesians 3.20 tells us this. So even though we're still very early in this biblical narrative, God apparently has very important things for us to learn from the event of the flood. Now, this is our second lesson in the flood. You might have wondered at some point whether there's any ancient extra-biblical literature that's been discovered to substantiate the Bible's claim and record of this flood. And as a matter of fact, Archaeologists have uncovered documents written by some of the world's most ancient cultures that contain flood stories. I think you'll find some of that information fascinating. But in order to give the biblical record the attention it deserves, I'm going to postpone talking about the extra-biblical accounts until our final beginnings lesson. For now, our purpose is to carefully consider exactly what God intended for us to learn from the flood a significant historical event with present with great meaning for our present lives. Now, you may remember that chapter 6 told of the wickedness of Noah's generation, God's decision to send judgment, and Noah's building of the ark. Chapter 7 begins with the Lord telling Noah that the rain would begin in seven days. It was time for Noah his wife, his three sons, and their wives to enter the ark. Now, those seven remaining days were probably days of preparation. It seems Noah and his family began to live on the ark, and that during that time, the animals joined him. 
That's right. The text says the animals came to him, just as God had promised. Noah didn't have to go out and collect them all. Previously, Noah was given a general instruction to take one pair of each kind of animal, bird, and creature that moved along the ground into the ark with him. But once the time to load the ark actually arrived, God gave much more specific information. Noah was to take one pair of every kind of unclean animal, but seven pairs of each kind of clean animal. After the flood, those additional clean animals would be a food source for Noah and his family, according to chapter 9, verse 3. In chapter 8, verse 20, we find that they were also used for sacrifice. Both For both clean and unclean animals and birds, one pair was preserved for reproduction. Now, I find it interesting that God gave Noah these specific instructions about the animals at the time when they were needed. And isn't that true for us as well? The Bible is a blueprint of general instructions for Christian living, but the details of God's plan for us aren't revealed until we need them. Are you currently waiting on God for specific instruction? Well, unless you failed to ask for guidance or are ignoring instructions he's already given you, it may simply be that the time for you to act hasn't yet arrived. But let's go back to those clean and unclean animals. Now later, later in Moses' time, that classification of clean and unclean was standardized. But some distinction must have been recognized much earlier, since there's no record of God clarifying for Noah which animals were clean and which were unclean. We don't know exactly how God himself determined which would be clean and which would be unclean. Maybe it was arbitrary. There are some folks who suggest that clean animals are those who had certain functions that maybe correspond to spiritual qualities that God loves, and that the unclean animals just lack those functions. But if that was the case, the exact nature of those functions remains a mystery. According to the New Testament, this physical distinction among animals was artificial and temporary. We aren't supposed to observe it today. However, it taught Old Testament saints a timeless spiritual lesson. God is holy, and he wants us to reflect his holiness by maintaining clean attitudes and behavior. Well, once the animals were on board and the final seven days of preparation were complete, the Lord himself shut the ark's door. It may have been physically impossible to close from the inside. But as I think about it, I find it difficult to imagine God asking Noah to close the door with all of his extended family and neighbors still outside. Once the doors were closed, any opportunity to be saved from God's wrath ended. Verse 11 tells us that water came from both above the earth and below it, implying great upheavals and shifting of the earth's crust, apparently breaking free subterranean reservoirs 
beneath the Earth's crust. At the same time, an unusual amount of water came in the form of rain. Now, at creation, God had separated the waters to create an atmosphere with some of the waters raised above the earth and some left on it. The release of the waters from above and below was, in a sense, the undoing of creation. Almost certainly, tremendous changes to the face of our planet resulted, and possibly to the earth's atmosphere as well. Life on earth was permanently changed. Verse 13 says that on that very day, Noah and his family entered the ark. On that very day probably refers back to verse 1, that day when God told Noah to enter the ark, seven days earlier. If so, Noah and his family were already safely inside when the deluge began. The flood, you see, was an actual historical event, and the ark was a real boat. Let me say it again. God often uses historical realities, like the flood and the ark, to foreshadow future realities and convey spiritual truths. And one of those spiritual truths depicted is depicted for us by the ark which is a major focus of chapters 7 and 8. Did you notice how often the ark is mentioned? In chapter 7 alone, verse 1, the Lord told Noah, go into the ark. Verse 7, they entered the ark to escape the waters. Verse 9, the animals also entered the ark. Entering the ark is mentioned again in verses 13 and verses 15. In verses 17 and 18, the waters lifted the ark, and it floated on the surface. And finally, in verse 23, only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. My friends, the ark was the vehicle of Noah's salvation from judgment. And throughout time, it has remained a symbol of salvation from a future final judgment. God's instruction in verse 1 to Noah, go into the ark, can also be translated, come into the ark. And it makes me think of Jesus' invitation when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. The vehicle of our salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is the vehicle of our salvation. Hebrews 11.7 emphasizes that it was Noah's faith that saved him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah built the ark without having ever seen anything remotely resembling it or a flood 
much less a flood that would cover the entire planet. Noah simply believed God. Faith, as the Bible uses the term, isn't mere intellectual assent. Neither is biblical faith just wishful thinking, hoping for the best. Biblical faith is based on knowledge. Now, although the facts that our faith rests on may not have complete scientific proof, we can still have confidence in them for historical, logical, and empirical reasons. Biblical saving faith is a reasonable faith, and it's always evidenced by our actions. Noah evidenced his faith by his building of the flood and his preaching. If our life choices and decisions aren't being impacted, we don't have biblical saving faith. I think the word trust explains the concept of biblical faith well. The New Testament tells us that those who died in the flood had no idea right up to that moment that anything was about to happen. So presumably, Noah hadn't seen any physical signs that the rains were coming. He built and entered the ark simply because he trusted God. Jesus urges us today, come to me, come into the ark. My friend who's questioning or who has been resisting, would you really prefer to live life your own way and be without hope on the day of God's final judgment? Won't you come into the ark of salvation by trusting Jesus Christ? You can choose this very day to trust in God's deliverer for salvation from the penalty of your sin and into eternal life. For those of you who've already entered the ark, so to speak, Could it be that you're not trusting Jesus with the needs and circumstances you currently face? You know, if you think about it, isn't it strange that we can say we trust Jesus to save us from the penalty of our sins at the final judgment? Such a huge thing. And yet we struggle to trust him with the details of everyday life? My believing friend, come into the ark. It is the place where all who are weary and heavily burdened will find rest. With what do you need to trust him? Well, once Noah and his family and the animals were on the ark, God closed the door and the deluge came. Now, some people don't think it was possible for the flood to have been worldwide. Proponents of a more localized flood say that our planet doesn't have enough water for the highest peaks on Earth to have been covered at one time. They point out that although Genesis 6.13 states God's intent to destroy the Earth, the biblical writers did use hyperbole in other passages. For example, Genesis 41 says that all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. When all the world is clearly from the perspective of those in Egypt. Similarly, it may have been from Noah's perspective that, as he wrote in verse 19, 
all the mountains under the entire heavens were covered. Many of those who take this localized flood view fully believe the Bible when it says that all life was wiped out. They just believe that at that time, all life was limited to the Mesopotamian region. And without a way to date the flood, just how far and wide the population had spread by Noah's time can't really be determined. On the other hand, those who believe the flood was universal insist that unlike other places in the Bible where hyperbole is used, Genesis 6 and 7 contain a special and a repeated emphasis that the flood was over all the earth. In response to that argument about water covering the earth's highest peaks, they point out that upheavals in the earth's crust occurred at the time of the flood and would almost certainly have changed the face of the earth. Prior to the flood, the earth's mountains may not have been at their present elevations. The flood itself could have pushed the high peaks of today to their heights. Additionally, marine fossils have been discovered on some of the world's highest mountaintops, indicating that all those mountains were covered by water at some point. Now, there are scientists with opposing views, and they explain that those are there as a result of plate tectonics. But a third point often made in defense of the universal flood view is that since it seems Noah had over a hundred years to build the ark. If the flood had been regional, in that amount of time, Noah could have just relocated. He certainly wouldn't have needed to take pairs of every kind of animal and bird with him, since at least some, if not most of these, would have surely spread outside the Mesopotamian region by then. And then also there's that flood story tradition of many cultures that I mentioned. Perhaps that fact alone supports a universal flood. And finally, universal flood proponents say that the New Testament's comparison of the flood to, to the destruction of the earth by fire at the end of human history supports the flood's universality. Whether the flood was universal or local, it claimed the lives of every living human being on the earth with the exception of the eight on the ark. The Bible emphasizes that every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all other creatures of the earth and mankind. I don't know about you, but I find it disturbing to consider the tremendous emotional pain Noah and his family must have endured on the ark as they heard the terror of neighbors friends, and family members outside the ark. In God's mercy, Noah's father Lamech, a man of faith, died five years before the flood. However, Noah had younger brothers and sisters, and they'd had plenty of years prior to the flood to have their own families. None of these were on the ark with Noah. Neither was anyone in Noah's wife's family nor the parents and siblings of his daughters-in-law. Well, once the rains stopped, the flooding continued for another 110 days. Genesis 8, verse 1, tells us that God remembered Noah. Now, that 
and he sent a wind over the, the earth. The image of God remembering doesn't mean that God forgot, but suggests his readiness to act on Noah's behalf. It was time for the waters to recede, and the recession of the waters occurred under God's direction, just as the flood had occurred at God's direction. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 say that 150 days after the flood began, the ark finally came to rest on Mount Ararat. I can only imagine that the lodging of the ark onto something solid must have brought Noah's family encouragement. Apparently, the waters receded much further over a second 150-day period. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us about Noah and his family's life on the ark during those many days. It's possible that God had given Noah some indication how long he'd be on the ark since he had instructed him to store food, but there's no conversation, uh, no record of such a conversation. Unless the Lord put the animals into hibernation, I suppose feeding and caring for them may have filled the larger part of the family's days. It was surely a year of emotional strain, mourning the deaths of relatives and acquaintances, and I think wondering what life would be like after the flood. They may have found creative ways to provide some entertainment or comic relief for one another. Surely there were many good conversations about God and with God that must have taken place. Well, after another 40-day period, Noah sent out a raven. Ravens aren't discriminating with regard to their diet and can obtain food from floating carcasses. And that would have allowed that raven to maraud over the waters without returning to the ark as frequently as would have been necessary for the survival of another bird species, bird of another species. Perhaps Noah was able to learn something by observing the raven's movements. We're not sure exactly why he sent out the raven. But then Noah sent out a dove to see if it could find land. It found none, and it returned to Noah. But after seven days, Noah repeated the experiment. And this time, the dove returned with a freshly plucked olive leaf. Plant life was becoming visible. After another seven days, Noah sent out the, a dove a third time, and apparently on this and on this occasion, it didn't return. Apparently, enough vegetation was above water level for its survival. And verse thirteen of chapter eight tells us that finally, Noah saw dry land. Although it was a joyous landmark day. The earth's surface was so saturated with mud and so transformed that its appearance must have been shocking. It took roughly two more months to dry out enough for Noah's family and the animals to safely leave the ark. When they finally debarked, they'd been on the vessel for just over one year. The flood of Noah's day has been the only general judgment of mankind since creation. Matthew 24, verses 38 and 39 say that in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, 
up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. Despite all the warnings that had been issued to them through Noah's preaching and the visual of the ark itself, Noah's extended family and neighbors, his entire generation, never believed God would take action. In the New Testament, Peter tells us that scoffers of every age prefer to follow their own desires and mock the notion of coming judgment. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, they say. But Peter says they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. God often uses historical realities such as the ark and the flood to foreshadow future realities and to convey spiritual truths. The flood stands in history as a warning to people of all subsequent generations that judgment, final judgment, is coming. Just as God judged the unrighteous of Noah's day by flood, he now holds the unrighteous for punishment by a future judgment of fire. The long delay may give the impression that God's forgotten our sin or chooses to ignore it. Scoffers assume judgment will never happen. In truth, God is patiently allowing more time for people to repent, not wanting anyone to perish. Sinners may seem to be getting away with a great deal of wrongdoing, but in the end, justice will be served. All those who've disregarded God's invitation to trust Christ for salvation will one day be eternally separated from him and all of his good gifts. Now for believers, the flood is a picture of cleansing from our sin and resurrection to new life, like baptism. The flood also reminds us to live our lives with expectancy. Although final judgment's being postponed, it could come at any time. Did you get that? Final judgment is being postponed, but could come at any time. Yet today, many pulpits fail to preach the biblical doctrine of judgment. Speaking about suffering and judgment is especially unpopular with Westerners, since so many of us have lived lives of relative ease. It'd be good for us to remember that the certainty of future judgment is the very basis of all Christian missionary efforts, both outside our own regions and within. The people of Noah's day didn't receive supernatural signs warning them of impending judgment. Many people today believe they can just wait until some later time in their life to start taking God seriously. At the moment, they're enjoying life and living it their own way. They foolishly ignore the possibility that they may meet death.
before another hour passes. God has mercifully given us a long season in which to warn others that judgment is coming. Let me ask you, would we hesitate to warn a child of physical danger he or she doesn't perceive? Then why are we often hesitant to give the most important warning of all? Why exactly have you hesitated to warn others of coming judgment? Why do I hesitate? Do we actually doubt the truth of God's word about this? If so, may the lesson of the flood be instructive for us. Maybe we're afraid of being mocked and ridiculed. I must admit I have been at times. Yet Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. While unbelievers will be condemned at the final judgment, the believer's judgment will be for the purpose of accountability and reward. We're in good company if we're mistreated. For not only were the prophets mistreated, this is the very path that our Savior walked. You know, in times when little courage has been evident within the church, little power has also been evident. Have you noticed it isn't hard to be courageous when we have to do so to protect someone we truly love? Is it possible we fail to warn others because we simply don't love them enough? How are we going to excuse our lack of love one day to the one who loves the world so much? Well, once the flood was over, God called Noah, his family, and the animals out of the ark. God's first instruction was to multiply, be fruitful, and increase in number on the earth. He'd given the same instruction after creation. So Noah became the second Adam. Through him, the earth would be repopulated. Noah had surely received God's grace. So the first thing he did when he got off the ark was to thank and worship him. In chapter 8, verse 20, we find the first mention of altar building in Scripture. After this, the altar of sacrifice continued to be the method by which men approached God until Christ came to earth. As Noah's offering of clean animals and birds burned, the smoke rose upward, signifying a bridge between man below and God above. Surviving a universal judgment must have left Noah humbled and grateful. The Lord smelled the aroma, we're told, the aroma of this sacrifice and was pleased. In response to Noah's sacrifice, God promised never to destroy the earth in the same way again. From that time forward, the seasons and laws of nature would remain constant. The earth wouldn't be burdened any further than it has been since sin entered it. And you know, God made this promise despite the fact 
that the flood did nothing to change man's heart. Thousands of years later, we see that he has faithfully kept his promise. Now, God's pleasure with Noah's sacrifice tells us that like Abel's, Noah's sacrifice must have been given with the right attitude. As the word sacrifice suggests, a true sacrifice is costly. Noah put to death some of the very animals he'd been responsible for protecting. And of course, with fewer animals remaining, animal population would take longer to increase. However, even the most costly sacrifice Noah could have made would never have been worthy of an utterly holy God. What ultimately made Noah's sacrifice pleasing to God was that in it, God foresaw the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice is the only truly worthy sacrifice that's ever been offered. Our last principle is that every past and present sacrifice reminds God of his son's sacrifice. Noah's sacrifice is a historical picture of the price God paid to secure our salvation in Jesus and a reminder that the least we can do in gratitude is to offer him our bodies and minds as living sacrifices with thanksgiving and praise. My friend, around you a storm may be howling. But as a believer, you are safely on the ark. So isn't it time for you to exchange your habit of grumbling and complaining for thanksgiving and praise? Are you grateful enough for the grace God has given you to offer him costly sacrifices? Will you Sound the alarm and warn others in appropriate and loving ways of the judgment that is yet to come. Go into the ark, all you who are weary and burdened by your sin. Come to Jesus. Oh, won't you come into the Ark of Salvation.